Computer, initialize Holosuite. everyone this is the sci-fi feminist i'm back after taking a break for one week and after moving from anchor to hollow suite media yes i'm happy to announce that i'm finally officially on the hollow suite media site so you will find the podcast there you can listen to the other episodes there you can also listen on my youtube channel for the sci-fi feminist and i would like to request that if you enjoy this podcast Please subscribe to my YouTube channel so that I can monetize it and make some cash out of it and um, feed myself, this poor, starving academic. Right, um, I really hope you guys enjoyed the previous episode on a character that's really close to my heart, which is, of course, none other than Lara Croft. Today, I would like to look at her a bit more. In the previous episode, I discussed the older version of Lara Croft, the version that existed between 1996 and 2008. This week, I would like to look at the rebooted version of the character, which first appeared in the Tomb Raider video game in 2013. So I would like to talk about her a little bit. If you are unfamiliar with the character, I give some background in the previous episode, as well as some fun facts. So you are welcome to go and listen to that episode and then listen to this one. So today I'm not really going to discuss her as much in relation to feminism, except for the notion or the idea that she is the exact opposite of the post-feminist supergirl archetype or representation that I discuss in the previous episode on Laura Croft, and I think it was in episode seven on Wonder Woman. So my argument today is basically that she represents the opposite of the post-feminist Supergirl, mainly because she's desexualized and she no longer uses her sexuality as a means to empower herself. In a later episode, I'll definitely do a feminist analysis on her, especially what has now been identified as the fourth wave of feminism, which is very new and exciting. The episode I will do on that is based on a chapter that I recently published in a book. The book has not been published yet. It's called Women in Archaeological Video Games. And hopefully it will be out quite soon. So you can look forward to that and also read more about Laura Croft in that book once it comes out. Right, so let me get right into the episode. So as I mentioned, the character of Laura Croft, she underwent a major makeover in 2013. The rebooted version of Lara Croft appears in the 2013 Tomb Raider video game. It's just called Tomb Raider. Then they released another one called Rise of the Tomb Raider in 2015 and then Shadow of the Tomb Raider in 2018. So all of these form part of the Tomb Raider reboot trilogy as it is popularly known and which I will, will also be calling it for the rest of this podcast. And then she also appears in the 2018 Tomb Raider movie starring Alicia Vikander as Lara Croft. 
I always love watching her training episodes, how she trained with that personal trainer. I think his name is Magnus. And um, it's very impressive what she has done. Um, her exercise routine is crazy. I've actually tried some of the exercises myself. And yeah, it's bad. She's She was really tough and she really trained well for that film. So if you haven't watched the movie, it's a fun watch. I wouldn't say that it's like an Oscar winning type of movie, but it's a fun movie to watch. So it's just called Tomb Raider and it was released in 2018. Now, there aren't a great many academic articles actually written about this new version of Lara Croft. The ones that I know of are by Haewon Han and Sejin Song. They are two South Korean authors who wrote a paper about her. And um, in many of my arguments, I actually refute their arguments in this paper because I don't agree with their analysis of Lara Croft, but I will get to that. Then another one by an author called Esther McCallum Stewart, uh, which is a bit of a more positive analysis of the new version of Laura Croft. And then, of course, the one that I wrote myself <laughs> that is also published in Game Studies. It is an open access journal. So if you would like to read the article, you're more than welcome to. It's called The New Laura Phenomenon, a post-feminist analysis of Laura Croft. No, no, of Rise of the Tomb Raider. Yes, that's the correct title. I just forgot the title of my own paper. Um, and then there will be the one that I recently wrote um, that will be published in that book on women in archaeological video games. So if you would like to read up on the, on the character in a more academic sense, then I suggest those articles. Right, so first of all, I will talk about... Han and Song, uh, the Korean authors, I'll talk about their analysis of Lara Croft. So in their paper, they acknowledge that Lara Croft's superficial appearance is an improvement on earlier versions. So you will see in pictures of the new version of Lara Croft, including the picture I used as the cover art for this podcast episode, the new version of Lara Croft is definitely desexualized compared to her previous version. So her breasts are much smaller, her waist is much wider, and she's much shorter. She doesn't have these wide hips either. She's much more in proportion, or she looks much more like your average woman. Uh, this is a slightly funny story. In my master's dissertation, I argued this. I argued that she's much more attainable and much more representative of a normal type of woman. And then my supervisor commented and she said, actually, no, Janine, um, not all women look like this. Maybe this is attainable for you who is in your 20s and young and fit. But uh, for me, this is an unattainable version of femininity. So um, that made me think a little bit. She's definitely more realistic, but she's still your above average um, woman. She's much fitter than the average woman, much stronger. Like I mentioned, Alicia Vikander had to undergo rigorous training in order to rep, uh, to not represent, to, what's the word I'm looking for, um, to resemble the new version of Lara Croft. So I'm not saying she's more attainable, but she's definitely much more realistic and more attainable than the previous version of the character, at least. Um, I've never met a person that actually looks like the Angelina Jolie version of Lara Croft. 
I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the previous episode, but she actually had to wear fake breasts and hair extensions to become Laura Croft. I'm talking about Angelina Jolie now. So that really just indicates, even for Angelina Jolie, who is really your above average um, woman in terms of Western ideals of beauty, even for her, the that old version of Laura Croft was unattainable and she had to make some modifications to her body in order to resemble that. Anyway, moving on with the discussion, I got sidetracked now. Han and Song, um, they acknowledge that Laura Croft is a bit better in terms of her appearance, but they say that emphasis is still not placed on Laura's unique features as a female hero. So Han and Song argue that Laura Croft still models stereotypical characteristics of all heroes or especially of male heroes. Then they further argue that in male hero narratives, other female characters often act as damsels in distress. And then they say that it's Laura's mother and her friend Sam that take on these roles in the 2013 Tomb Raider reboot um, video game. Because um, Laura displays her heroism her heroism through searching for her lost mother or her missing mother and rescuing her friend Sam from a violent cult on the island of Yamatai. So you will actually see that Sam is definitely portrayed as much more feminine than Laura Croft. And then there have also been some queer readings in terms of these characters. They say that, um, well, fans have written fan fiction and made these um mashups and these edits that kind of pair Sam and Laura up as a lesbian couple um, because Sam is much more feminine and Laura is much more masculine. And then, of course, this plays into stereotypes of what queer people are, that there's always a male and female in the relationship, even though it's two women. So there are many levels of meaning um, that take place. Um, I'm not really going to discuss Laura and Sam in too much detail, but just an interesting point of discussion that I wanted to point out. So their main argument, Han and Song's main argument, is that the new version of Laura, I will call her new Laura throughout, she possesses a dual identity. They say she simultaneously acts as a hero and as a damsel in distress. And then this is, of course, where I disagree. I don't think that this is true, but, you know, we're all entitled to our own opinion. This is their analysis of the character. So they uh, substantiate this by saying that Lara's relationship with her mentor, Roth, who guides her throughout the game, and her relationships with Alex and Angus, who sacrifice themselves for her survival, um, that makes her a damsel in distress because those are all male characters. And then they also mention the trailer of Rise of the Tomb Raider. So before the game was released, there was a trailer for the game. And I've argued that this trailer actually has nothing to do with the actual video game. That's why their claims aren't substantiated. But in the trailer, Laura is sitting in front of a psychologist, a male psychologist, they say, which is problematic for them. And um, she has experienced post-traumatic stress after her ordeal on Yamatai. And they say that because of that, she's also a damsel in distress. 
Okay, um, like I said, they sketched a pretty negative version of this new version of uh, a negative picture of this new version of Lara Croft, which I don't really agree with. Um, and even though new Lara, she does fit some of the archetypal ideas of what a male hero is, they don't actually mention what a female hero archetype that new Laura should model actually looks like. So they say that, you know, these things are bad about her, but they don't actually say then what should she be. And I found that problematic too. So then in defense of new Laura, Esther McCallum Stewart, she provides for me a more convincing analysis of the Tomb Raider reboot video game. One critical aspect of the game that she highlights which Han and Song failed to acknowledge, is the significance of Rihanna Pratchett's involvement in the creation of New Lara. So this is an interesting fact. If you didn't know, Rihanna Pratchett is Terry Pratchett's daughter. He was the writer of all the Discworld novels, and I read those novels as a kid, so this was quite cool for me. Um, so that is Rihanna Pratchett, and when they made the Tomb Raider reboot, she was employed as the writer of the story for Lara Croft. So she actually wrote the story. She had a very big impact on the narrative of Lara Croft. And I think that's significant because I don't know if I mentioned this in the previous episode, but all of the previous Tomb Raider games were written by men and Lara Croft was designed by a male programmer um, since the very beginning, which for me... Yeah, I wouldn't say it takes away her transgressive potential, but I do think the fact that a female writer was involved is quite significant and important. This game was also released at a time where players and developers, both men and women, were becoming increasingly aware of sexism in the video game industry, and Rihanna Pratchett's role as head scriptwriter of Tomb Raider Reboot became a focal point of these issues. I'm not sure if you're aware, but 2013 was also right after the whole Gamergate incident. Um, I'm not going to talk about that, but you can Google it, what happened with Gamergate. It was quite controversial. So sexism was an issue that was discussed um, at that time. It was quite a big thing. Right, so for McCallum Stewart, Pratchett's pivotal role in the creation of the new version of Lara Croft is an indication from Crystal Dynamics' side, they are the developer, that Tomb Raider has gone, undergone an ideological and ludic transformation where the female player is now also a significant target audience. Just as a side note, female players now comprise almost half of the players in the US, which I think is quite significant. According to McCallum Stewart, Pratchett's role in the creation of Tomb Raider Reboot suggests that women should be involved in all levels of game production and that the industry should produce games for all genders. For McCallum Stewart, Pratchett has undeniably rebranded Lara Croft as a feminist icon. Now, as I explained earlier, Han and Song would disagree with that. But I lean more towards McCallum Stewart's argument. I wouldn't say the new Laura is a feminist icon, but she's definitely a much more progressive representation or portrayal of a female video game character. 
Okay, I would also like to point out, so like I said earlier, Han and Song say that Lara is a damsel in distress because she has all these male mentors throughout the game. But actually, they fail to mention that Lara's main male mentor, Roth, dies halfway throughout Tomb Raider reboot, meaning that Lara does not rely on any male character for guidance from that point on, and even into Rise of the Tomb Raider and Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Furthermore, Han and Song do not conduct an analysis of the full Rise of the Tomb Raider game, and they substantiate their claim that she's a damsel in distress by only referring to the game trailer, which, as I've mentioned earlier, has no actual relation to the gameplay. And they also failed to recognize Rihanna Pratchett's significant involvement in the creation of Tomb Raider Reboot, which definitely had an impact on Lara's representation and narrative. From this point of the discussion onwards, then, I'm going to pick out a few key elements that makes the new version of Lara Croft different from the old version of her. So I will describe all of them and discuss all of them, and um, that's what I will do for the rest of the episode, so I hope you enjoy it. So as McCallum Stewart points out, one of the most apparent transformations that Lara Croft has undergone since her first appearance in 1996 is her physical appearance. In Rise of the Tomb Raider, just as it is in Tomb Raider Reboot, Lara's body is slim and athletic, and I quote from McCallum Stewart, without overstepping current ideals of athletic womanhood, instead of being hyper-feminized and hypersexualized as old Lara is. According to the various fan forums, old Lara's vital statistics are a height of 180 centimeters, which is really above the average height for the average woman, a weight of 59 kilograms, okay, which is really light for someone who is 180 centimeters tall, and her breast-waist-hip ratio is 34D, 24, and 35, which are really extreme proportions that are similar to Barbie's body, which has also received a lot of scrutiny in academia. So in contrast to that, new Lara's vital statistics, statistics, are a height of 168 centimeters and a weight of 56 kilograms, which are similar to Alicia Vikander's vitals, which is 166 centimeters height and 53 kilograms weight. So that is much more attainable. I am about 161. Um, I'm not going to mention my weight, <laughs> but uh, these are much more attainable proportions. Although even Vikander's and new Lara's bodies are still difficult to obtain by most women, as my supervisor also pointed out to me a few years ago, especially if one takes not only their height and weight, but also their protruding muscles and physical strength into consideration, it is at least not beyond the reach of a human being, <laughs> as old Lara's figure is. Like I mentioned earlier, even Angelina Jolie had to wear fake breasts and hair extensions in addition to doing extensive training in order to vaguely resemble old Lara in the Tomb Raider movies from 2001 and 2003. Based on the above, then, I would argue that the restructuring of Lara's body eliminates the extremes that are manifested in the figure of the post-feminist Supergirl. So if you would like to know what those extremes are, then please listen to the previous episode. I also argue that new Laura 
Although new Laura still often wears body-hugging clothing, she's not as sexualized as old Laura is, nor as the other post-feminist supergirls in video games are. I'll briefly digress there. Other post-feminist supergirls in video games, uh, the examples I continually pointed at was Bayonetta. Um, her name is Ceriza in the video game, but from the Bayonetta video games. And there's actually Bayonetta 3 being released sometime in the near future, uh, which I'm excited to play. And also Rain from the video game Blood Rain. There was also a movie called Blood Rain, which I heard was terrible. I never watched it. But um, those can also be considered post-feminist supergirls in video games. Again, um, please listen to the previous episode if you would like to know more about that. Lara Croft's wardrobe is perhaps one of the biggest appeals in the Tomb Raider video games. As a kid, I used to love dressing her up, and I still do. I think her outfits are really one of the best parts of the game. In every Tomb Raider game up to 2008, Lara has the ability to choose from a variety of outfits, ranging from explorer clothing to evening wear to wetsuits and bikinis. And then as the game progresses, the player unlocks these outfits and Lara can wear them as she pleases. For example, and I thought this was a really absurd detail in the older Tomb Raider games, is that Lara Croft can raid a bikini, uh, not raid a bikini, raid a tomb in her bikini if she wanted to. She had this golden bikini um, that you can equip on her, especially in Tomb Raider Legend and Tomb Raider Underworld. And obviously that is totally absurd. Who would ever raid a tomb in a bikini? I think that's really ludicrous. I think really the only purpose for putting that in the video game is for the gamer to be able to peer at Lara's body while she climbs the cliffs and raids the tomb. Um, that is a really weird detail and that's never made any sense to me. So that's the type of thing you see taking place in the older Tomb Raider games. Obviously, these outfits also don't have any impact on the gameplay. Um, if it did, then I think Laura would die instantly in her golden bikini because there's absolutely no protection from anything in that outfit. And actually, nor is there in any of her other outfits. Her outfits are really generally quite skimpy. So, yes. In Rise of the Tomb Raider... And Tomb Raider Reboot 2, all of the Tomb Raider trilogy, Reboot Trilogy games, Lara can also access a variety of outfits. The most notable change employed in Lara's Rise of the Tomb Raider outfits is that 18 of these outfits offer new Lara tactical advantages. For example, the Hope's Bastion outfit, which is one of my favorite outfits, it boosts Lara's bow shots, where the Siberian Ranger outfit increases Lara's carrying capacity for all special ammunition. So in effect, the player does not choose Lara's outfits for cosmetic purposes, like some people would choose to equip the golden bikini in order to peer at her body, but rather the player chooses her outfits based on the environment that she is in, because that is a determining factor for Lara's survival. If you find yourself in a certain situation having equipped the wrong gear, then Lara might die and then you can't pass that level. 
In fact, for new Lara, the option of a golden bikini does not exist at all. So even if you want to equip a golden bikini onto new Lara, you can't because it's just not part of her oeuvre of clothing. In all instances, Lara's new outfits in Rise of the Tomb Raider and Shadow of the Tomb Raider and also Tomb Raider Reboot, they are unrevealing and elaborate. According to the criteria of sexualization of female characters put forward by author named Lynch, old Lara would be considered sexualized, whereas new Lara's appearance puts far less emphasis on her body as a sexual object. Now, the criteria for the sexualization of female characters in the Lynch study was measured by the proportions and amount of skin revealed in four areas of the character's body, which would be the waist, the buttocks, the chest and the leg re regions and sexualized movements. For example, unnecessary undulation or jiggling. And then characters were also considered as sexualized if their breasts were disproportionate to their body size. So in terms of all this criteria, with old Laura's skimpy outfit and her breast size, she would definitely be considered as sexualized where new Laura isn't. In these ways, then, in terms of her physical representation at least, new Laura could be considered as moving away from the post-feminist ideal since a critical characteristic of the post-feminist supergirl is her hyper-feminized, sexualized and exposed body. The next aspect that I would like to discuss about new Lara is the fact that she transformed from a really flat two-dimensional character to a more complex and emotive character. And this can definitely be attributed to technology too. Um, in the 90s, there just wasn't morphology, facial technology, or what is the other one, uh, motion capture technology. So definitely that has an impact too. New Lara is created with morphology facial technology, which means that her emotions are performed by an actress, which was Camilla Luddington for New Lara. And then it's imported into a computer system where, developer, where developers build the character upon that foundation. Now, some theorists have argued that it is exactly because old Lara is two-dimensional in her characterization, characterization her facial and her bodily expressions and movements, that she so easily invites players to objectify her or to identify with her or to do both. Now, this is a bit of a more complex argument, but I will make the argument anyway. So this author named Poole, he wrote a book on Lara Croft. He says that old Lara's very blankness encourages the male or female player's psychological projection. In the case of new Lara, though, because she has more substance as a character, and this is my argument, and as a video game entity, she has the potential to move beyond being simply this empty signifier for people to project themselves on. Instead, even though players can simply use her as a mere avatar, new Lara has the potential to become a character rather than acting simply as a vehicle with which the player can navigate the game world. Now, we'll continue this argument. There's another theorist named Bob Rehack. He argues that owing to old Lara's lack of individuating detail, she's been continually reinvented across, across media platforms. 
By that I mean that old Lara can, she kind of looks like every woman and like no woman. There's no individuating detail that makes her different from every, every other uh, video game character. And it's quite interesting because all of these video game characters from the 90s, they all have a similar look. And I think definitely this is because of technology too. They just didn't have the technology to make them more individuated. But Rehack specifically argues that because of the lack of individuating detail, this is why Lara is continually being reinvented across media platforms. Old Lara often appear on billboards and magazine covers, and then we see her sometimes acting as a model, sometimes as an action heroine, and even sometimes as a pin-up girl. She's actually been in the Playboy magazine too, <laughs> which I think is quite, um, it says quite a lot about her. I really don't think that the old version of Lara is a feminist icon because whenever she is reinvented across other media platforms, it's usually in sexualized terms. Now, my argument is that because new Lara is not so much an empty signifier due to her more complex characterization, she can only be Lara Croft, the action heroine. So, so far, since the release of Rise of the Tomb Raider and Tomb Raider Reboot and Shadow of the Tomb Raider, I have not seen this new version of Lara Croft appear on different media platforms as anything other than Lara Croft, the action heroine, with her characterization established in the series Reboot intact. Now... For my next discussion, I will be focusing on the ludological changes made to Rise of the Tomb Raider that further individuate the character. Ludology or ludological analysis, uh, let me just explain the term because I had absolutely no idea what this meant when I first discovered it. Ludology is the study of games. So... It's the study of the rules of games and then the field expanded to the study of video games as well. So in the beginning, ludologists, they would kind of like study chess <laughs> or like the rules of chess and then what makes this a game. So that field developed quite a lot over the past hundred years or so, but I'm not going to go into that. But by ludological changes, I mean the changes made to the gameplay. Okay, so Tomb Raider is character categorized as an action-adventure game. And the ludological structure of adventure games demands that they are progressive rather than emergent. And they rely heavily on narrative. Progressive that rather than emergent means that there is a set story and then that story plays out. Emergent games would be more like World of Warcraft or open world RPG games um, where the narrative kind of emerges as you play. Tomb Raider has a set narrative and you just kind of complete certain goals in the game and then you eventually finish the game after 13 hours or so. Uh, open world RPG games has much more emergent structure <laughs> where you can play like hours and hours and hours more. So that's what I mean by that. Therefore, in all Tomb Raider games, there is a predetermined story and Lara has to complete a number of quests in order to progress to the next part of the story and ultimately complete the game. In the reboot trilogy, developers have introduced new game modes 
as DLC or downloadable content that changed the ludological structure of the game in order to provide players more variety and explore additional aspects of Lara's characterization and narrative. So I would like to focus on these game modes a little bit and how this actually impacts Lara's characterization. In Rise of the Tomb Raider, four new game modes have been introduced. Um, there are others in the other Tomb Raider games too, but Rise of the Tomb Raider, as far as I know, I wouldn't say it had the most DLC, but the DLC was for me the most varied, definitely, in Rise of the Tomb Raider. So that's why I'm talking about that. So there is the Remnant Resistance mode, the Cold Darkness Awakened mode, Endurance mode, and Lara's Nightmare, which were separate DLC released after the game. Now, I will talk only about Endurance Mode and Lara's Nightmare because these game modes have a more direct relation to the characterization of new Lara. Now, the primary goal in Endurance Mode is to survive for as long as possible. And this is quite fun. I really enjoyed playing this Endurance Mode because in the beginning, it's quite easy to survive. And then later, it just gets more and more difficult. My record time for surviving is not very long. I think it's maybe like 10 or 20 minutes. Uh, it, the game gets quite hectic, but this is quite a fun game mode that they introduced. So that's the primary goal of this endurance mode. Secondary goals include capturing enemy bases, discovering artifacts, and raiding crypts. And this is the interesting part. In endurance mode, Laura also has a hunger meter and a cold meter. So she has to hunt animals while protecting herself against predators and she needs to harvest fruits in order to keep her hunger meter in the green so you need to actually take care of Lara's um, hunger if if you don't die from the cold or if you don't get killed by an enemy you die from hunger and then for the cold meter she has to make campfires or stand close to fires in order to keep her warmth meter up and then at night, Lara's warmth decreases significantly faster unless she enters shelters or tombs. And I think this was quite a nice addition to this mode. And that, yeah, I'll get to that. Let me, let me tell you what that means now. Um, okay, so first, if her hunger or cold meter uh, reaches zero, then she dies and then the expedition is over and then it's game over. And in addition to that, she also has to gather resources such as wood and animal skins and she needs that in order to craft and upgrade her weapons or to make campfires or extraction signals. So this is the crux of my argument. In endurance mode, instead of dominating her landscape and being completely in control, like the post-feminist version of old Lara is, new Lara is simply just trying to survive. And because of this, she is increasingly vulnerable. I've received some criticism, criticism about this, saying that Laura's vulnerability is a good thing. But maybe it's not a good thing or a bad thing, but it's certainly different from the previous version of Laura Croft, her vulnerability. Even when you play endurance mode, you feel quite vulnerable because... In the main game, you just need to kind of protect yourself against enemies and predators. But now that added dimension of hunger and cold really changes the dynamics of the game. And um, you find yourself, or I found myself, 
trying to just keep those two meters up instead of actually accomplishing anything, <laughs> raiding any tombs or getting anything done. Most of the time, I'm just trying not to die from the hunger or the cold. Okay, moving on to Laura's Nightmare. This is another additional game mode that was only released in 2016 with the 20th anniversary celebration of Tomb Raider. So this was one year after the release of the main game. Laura's Nightmare is based in Croft Manor, where she reads a mysterious letter that threatens her removal from Croft Manor. She then enters the horrifying game world in which she repeatedly reminds herself that she's having a nightmare and that none of this is real. In Lara's Nightmare, the only objective is to destroy Skulls of Rage, which are presumably the source of her nightmare, and maybe a metaphor for her troubled psyche that we see in the Rise of the Tomb Raider um, trailer that Han and Song mentioned. In addition to destroying the Skulls of Rage, she then also needs to defend herself against reincarnations of her enemies that she killed in the past, until she manages to destroy all the skulls. So they're kind of like these weird zombie people. And should Laura die, she does not respawn and then the game is over. Okay, now like I argue, the introduction of Endurance Mode and Laura's Nightmare has a considerable, considerable impact on the characterization of the character. And here let me talk a little bit about vulnerability. Joel Anderson, he's a theorist, he defines vulnerability as the degree to which a person is not able to control the forces that influences her or him. Vulnerability can furthermore be increased by those forces becoming more powerful and the person becoming less able to counter these forces. And that is exactly what we see taking place in endurance mode. First, Endurance Mode emphasizes new Laura's vulnerability as the forces that threaten Laura become more pervasive and uncontrollable as the game progresses, and the player is forced to experience a Laura Croft who's not invincible, invincible, but who also needs to eat and stay warm while experiencing the fear of being pitted against a hostile environment. Then in terms of Laura's nightmare, this game mode allows the player to enter Lara's troubled psyche, filled with a trauma from killing many enemies and from losing her parents at a young age. In contrast to old Lara, new Lara struggles psychologically with traumas from her youth and from her recent past, and these are manifested in Lara's nightmare. New Lara's mental complexity is a move away from the post-feminist Supergirl, that I described earlier as vulnerability and remorse are definitely not characteristics that have been displayed in previous post-feminist heroines, such as the old version of Laura Croft, Rain from Blood Rain and Syriza from Bayonetta. We never see Laura mourn the loss of an animal or mourn the loss of an enemy that she killed. And we never see that these take any toll on her mentality or on her psych psychology and this is really interesting for me the that heroism still is defined by violence um laura is technically she's not really a heroine she's a murderer she kills a lot of people and the body toll in all of the tomb raider games not only the old ones but the new ones too um, they are still, it's still very high. 
So I kind of questioned that and um, obviously there's no answers. This is a video game in the end and now this goes down to the whole argument of violence in video games. But it's just an interesting thing that I picked up. Uh, Laura's heroism is still kind of measured by the fact that she kills a whole bunch of people, which is a little bit problematic for me. But I'm not going to get into this debate at this stage. Right, so then moving on to the open world map. In the main story, New Lara operates in an open world map. And this means that even though the game world is created for Lara, she does not have control over the forces that influence her, such as her environment, to the extent that she used to. There are some distances, for example, that New Lara cannot jump. And there are some areas of the game that she cannot access until she has acquired the appropriate gear to do so. In contrast, old Lara always has the gear to do the job from the start. If the distance for new Lara is too far to jump, then she'll grab onto a ledge with only one hand and the player needs to act fast to prevent her from falling to her death. And then for me, this further increases new Lara's sense of vulnerability. Even though she has many skills, the player still feels that she might not survive this vast and hostile landscape. So for me, I've argued that her vulnerability makes her definitely makes her more realistic. In terms of another theorist, his name is Alexander Galloway, in terms of his definition that realism in video games should not merely strive for realistic representation, but should reflect critically on the minutia of everyday life, replete as it is with struggle, personal drama, and injustice. That's his quote. In this way, then, new Laura's sense of vulnerability may offer a representation of femininity that is not far removed from women's lived experiences in 21st century society, despite the gains that feminism has made already over the past century. And then... An emphasis on vulnerability, and um, this is the the downside of it. Even though it does make Laura more realistic, it has all of these positive aspects. Unfortunately, it might still reinvite male players to care for and protect the female character, as Maya Mikula, another theorist, has also argued about old Laura. More problematically, perhaps, is that new Lara's mental vulnerability may also perpetuate archaic and essentialist notions of women and hysteria. So there is this old stereotype that women are crazy <laughs> or that women are hysterical. So this emphasis on her vulnerability and especially her mental vulnerability may open up readings for that and perpetuate those stereotypes. Although I do not really agree with Han and Song's reading of New Lara, an emphasis on her vulnerability definitely preempted by her visit to the psychologist in the Rise of the Tomb Raider trailer may indeed situate her as a damsel in distress. So yeah, they might be right in terms of that. I don't really think her vulnerability is a negative thing. I also think it sheds light on important mental issues in 21st century society like the game Hellblade Sunua's Sacrifice also does. Um, but anyway, that is what theorists have argued, and that's my arguments regarding Laura's vulnerability. The final thing that I will quickly touch on is Laura's narrative. 
And I think this is another significant aspect because um, her even her narrative has undergone quite a big change in the Tomb Raider reboot. So Old Lara's origin story and narrative was continually being reinvented by fans and thus there exists as many versions of Old Lara as the number of fans that she has. According to Helen Kennedy, an author that wrote about Old Lara, providing Old Lara with a fairly plausible history gives her some ontological coherence and helps to enhance the immersion of the player in the Tomb Raider world and abets the identification with Lara. New Lara's detailed origin story is therefore not only significant because it was written by a female writer, but the existence of a completely plausible origin story inevitably lessens the number of reinventions of the character. Like I pointed out earlier, these reinventions are sometimes problematic because she's often reinvented in sexualized terms. In addition to the ludological changes that give Lara substance as a character, these changes to Lara allow players to identify with her more than objectifying her. Throughout Rise of the Tomb Raider and the previous Tomb Raider games, Lara's father, Richard Croft, his presence is strongly felt. Lara's journey to Kitesh in Rise of the Tomb Raider is a continuation of her father's quest and she often expresses things like, this was in dad's note or if only dad could see this. And then she is also frequently encouraged by other characters that her father would be proud of her that, or that he would have done the same. At times, Lara also experienced visit, experiences vivid flashbacks of her father and she repeatedly listens to his voice notes that he left behind. In Tomb Raider Reboot, Lara's other male mentors are eliminated, like I mentioned earlier, so in Rise of the Tomb Raider, only Lara's deceased father acts as the motivating force behind her. Now, this is problematic. <laughs> okay. In a study of fatherhood in video games, an author called Sarah Stang notes how father figures that protect female protagonists in games perpetuate the familiar trope of a heroic man rescuing a damsel in distress. As I mentioned earlier, Han and Song also assert that the focus on new Laura's father causes her to simply mimic the narrative of male heroes who often reaffirm patriarchal narratives by following in their father's footsteps. Now, they are justified in their observation. I can't argue with that. But although Richard Croft is a dominant figure in New Lara's past, in the Blood Ties expansion for Rise of the Tomb Raider, Lara's late mother is central to the story. The Blood Ties plot begins with Lara receiving a letter threatening her removal from Croft Manor, as she apparently has no legal claim to the estate. Lara also has to find the will for the estate in order to prove that she owns the place. Laura then discovers a crypt, so if you complete the story, if you complete the blood tie story, Laura finds the crypt beneath the manor where her mother is buried, and then this acts as proof that the manor actually belongs to her. In the crypt, Laura also finds her mother's final note to her. Her mother, Amelia Croft, writes in the note, My energy, my love is within you, Laura. It will always be. It thus becomes apparent that new Laura inherited many of her heroic qualities from her mother and not only from her father. 
So it is true that Lara's will to redeem her father's name drove her to embark on her main quest, but it is because of her mother that she can claim back their estate and reaffirm herself as a Croft. So through resituating Amelia Croft within New Lara's narrative, the centralization and valorization of the heroine's father is subverted and this, for me, allows Lara to move beyond being simply another damsel in distress. In Shadow of the Tomb Raider 2, actually, there is a whole chapter uh, where you play as a young Lara Croft. I think it's called Brave Adventurer. And then um, she also gets this flashback of her mom. So there's a lot more emphasis on new Lara's relationship with her mother um, rather than that of with her father. Unfortunately, and I, I will finish off with this, unfortunately in the Tomb Raider movie, you will see that Lara, Lara Croft's father plays a very significant role in the movie starring Alicia Vikander. For me, that was a little bit disappointing that they didn't place more emphasis on her mother like they do in the video games. But yeah, obviously I have no say in what happens in the movie. Still, it's a nice movie, but that's one detail that they changed a lot from the video games, um, which I think might have been better if they didn't. But that's just my opinion. So yeah, that is my take on new Lara. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I will wrap up with Lara Croft for a while now and then hopefully come back to her again later when I do a fourth wave feminist analysis of new Lara. Thank you for listening, everyone. And this is the Sci-Fi Feminist signing off. Live long and prosper. This show is brought to you by Hollow Sweet Media. Computer. List other available Holosuite media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Her First Trek, a Star Trek Preview Podcast. I don't know what Picard is doing between the Stargazer and the Enterprise D. So how do you go from abandoning a ship to getting given the flagship? But <laughs> ten years passes. <laughs> yeah, he lost the other one. So but here's a really special one. And here's the best part. We're going to put families and children on it. Yeah. Because we know that you're so good at taking care of starships. Yeah. I don't know how he got the ship and what was he doing in the time in between. I don't think he had another command before the Enterprise I don't D. Know. I don't know. I'm sure someone will let me know. We have quite a few TNG fans who listen to the show, actually, so maybe they'll tell me. But no spoilers, guys. No spoilers. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Voyages, a Star Trek original, animated, and Kelvin Films podcast full honesty i did find that the scene was seemingly long when they were driving with him and, and scotty to get to the enterprise when they were in their little capsule i felt that that was a very long scene driving around the whole enterprise but find yourself someone in life that looks at you the way kirk looked at the enterprise i mean that was a beautiful moment and i absolutely adored when spock came back onto the enterprise just how everybody on the bridge, like Yuhura and Chekhov and everybody, they just kind of rallied around him. And it was a really warming moment just to see that original core group of people just celebrate him and happy to see him. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.